0: 7 billion
1: people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassie Zachary and April Callahan. Cass, if I may, I would like to tell you a story, a magical story. That is my favorite kind of story. Will this be of a fairy tale variety? Well, I think I think we can arrange
0: for that. <laughs> Here goes. Once upon a time, in a palace far, far away, princesses, barons, baronesses, all gathered for an evening of sumptuous delights, an evening of spectacle and grandeur beyond compare, complete with music, food, fashion. Oh, so much fashion. I mean, women were literally dripping in jewels and those with the right to do so wore their royal diamond tiaras, while others pranced and danced about the Palace of Versailles wearing three-foot-high feathers in their hair.
1: Okay, I, I do think I know where this may be going, and of course we've already talked about the Vogue for women wearing those tremendously expensive, enormous feathers in their hair in our episode about Rose Bretagne, who was Marie Antoinette's stylist. Yes,
0: but wait, because the story isn't over yet. Mm -hmm. The evening began with a performance in the Théâtre Gabriel, which is the Palace of Versailles' royal opera house. It's a breathtaking theater with walls and ceilings featuring 18th-century rococo depictions of nudes, nymphs, and celestial creatures. You know, the stage itself was shrouded in these pale blue curtains bearing the French monarchy's golden fleur-de-lis motif. And overseeing the whole of this, were seven gold and crystal chandeliers that were designed to hold 2,000 candles as their light source. Okay, transport me back
1: here immediately. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, there's more. <laughs> Following an epic three-plus-hour performance in the Royal Opera House, complete with a champagne-soaked intermission, the creme de la creme of the audience was invited to supper in the king's apartments. Making their way through the sensuous and seductive hall of Beers at night, when it was lined with footmen, you know this was pretty unforgettable, I'm sure. And then finally, the guests emerged into the five rooms of the king's apartments, which were lit only by tall candles in these really lofty gold candelabras. And in the words of one guest, quote, "You opened your eyes and you were just blinded by the splendor, the beauty."
1: Okay, at, at this point, I think I only have one question, and that is, what was Queen Marie Antoinette wearing? And that's just it. She was not even
0: there. The scene I just described would not take place until 200 years after
1: her reign. It happened in 1973. <laughs> okay, but in that case, you can only be referring to none other than the Grand Divertissement of Versailles, a legendary fashion face-off that was never intended to be. Yep, this week we honor the 45th anniversary
0: of a pivotal moment in fashion history when American designers took on the best and brightest of French couture and the Americans won. Coined the Battle of Versailles by the fashion press at the time, it follows then that our guest today is also a member of the fashion press, Pulitzer Prize-winning fashion critic Robin Gavon of the Washington Post joins us to walk us through the event that has been described as, quote, the robbery of all time. Welcome, Robin. Robin, thank you so much for joining us today on Dressed. Um, You and I have not seen each other in some time, but we first met when you were researching your 2015 book, The Battle of Versailles, which I might add garnered illustrious designation of New York Times bestseller. So belated congratulations. (laughs) Thank you very much. Related is always welcome too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there's so much to say about this specific moment of fashion history and this event in particular. It's almost hard to know where to begin. But I guess I would like to begin with a, a two-part question for you, which is, in the 1970s, what was the state of American fashion? And what was its relation to fashion that was coming out of France?
2: Well, the American fashion industry was really um, a, a relatively new industry, and it was completely uh, creatively beholden to Paris. Um, the American industry was really about um, sort of manufacturing clothing for the masses of women. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't focused on creative design necessarily, and and that's not to say that there weren't creative designers at work. It's just that, one, they were few and far between. And most designers really worked behind the scenes, meaning they didn't have their name on a label. Um, and the ideas that were um, being sold in the U.S. were really coming directly from Paris. It was really just an interpretation of what Parisian designers uh, were dictating.
0: Yeah, and and you actually note in your book, you have this really wonderful... Um quote from Bill Blass. And he basically says, everything we did in those days was derivative of Paris. In those days, it was considered the norm. So this, this kind of
2: culture of, of copying was really institutionalized. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it it wasn't the situation that we often have today in which, uh, you know, designers sort of fret that um, mass marketing companies or fast fashion will just, you know, sort of dive in and randomly start uh, copying their work. I mean, this was really quite formal. And whether it was manufacturers or it was store buyers, they would come to Paris and they would go to Uh, shows by designers like Saint Laurent or Givenchy or Balenciaga, and they would pay a fee. Mm -hmm. And that fee allowed them to copy uh, the designs that came down the Paris runways. And that fee also uh, not only bought them the right to copy, but, you know, it got them access to, you know, to patterns and to fabric. So it was really... um, not only acknowledged, it was uh, approved by the French because it meant more money in their coffers.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and I always like to point out to my
0: students that in the in the time periods of World War One and World War Two, this influx of of money, foreign money, um, is one of the things that helped keep the
2: couture alive. Oh, absolutely! I mean, it was um, you know a regular uh, feature of. You know the retail world that it the buyers would go to Paris, and they would t- essentially take their marching orders from the French houses. Mm-hmm. They would pay the French houses um, for uh, sort of different levels of access, because you know a, a very wealthy woman in New York who didn't want to go to Paris and uh, deal with the couture could go to say uh, you know a, a Bergdorf Goodman, mm-hmm. and she could select her garment there, and she could go through a series of fittings at Bergdorf. And she wouldn't have couture, but she would have, you know, Saint Laurent for Bergdorf Goodman. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was a a similar um, level of expertise, not the same, but it was a higher quality than the next level down, which was uh, sort of a private label version of that original design. And then it would trickle down even more. And as a result, you had um, also a sense that if you were a woman who wanted to feel like she was participating, like you were participating in the fashion conversation, if you wanted to feel that you were, you know, dressed in a sort of culturally relevant way, you didn't have a lot of choices. You sort of, oh, if the hemlines were at a certain length, your hemline was at a certain length, even if it perhaps was not the most flattering length on you.
0: (laughs) So now that we have set the stage a bit um, as to what the relationship was between American fashion and French fashion, what exactly was the Grand Divertissement of Versailles and who conceived it and why?
2: It was originally conceived as a fundraiser uh, to help with the restoration of Versailles. Um, The French government certainly contributed funds for that restoration, but not nearly enough. Mm-hmm. And so the the Palace of Versailles um, had a very savvy curator at the time, and um, he really relied on a lot of donations from wealthy Americans. And he was friendly with an American publicist named Eleanor Lambert. And, um, you know, at one point turned to her for... suggestion on what kind of fundraiser um, he might cook up uh, (laughs) to bring in more money. And And Eleanor um, had long had a passion for American design and wanting to push it into the spotlight and elevate it on the world stage. And so when she was asked what kind of fundraiser she might have, you know, in the back of her mind, Uh, she immediately thought of her designers and suggested um, a fashion show.
0: Yes. And um, any of our listeners who have listened to past episodes might recognize this name, Eleanor Lambert, because we have mentioned her a few different times. Um, She was really kind of like this behind-the-scenes grand dame that was like pulling all the strings within the American fashion industry at the time. Um, What was it about Lambert that made her uniquely qualified to organize an international event of this magnitude because because it really did become a massive venture.
2: Yeah. Well, I think some of it was that, you know, she was sort of born with this Midwestern work ethic and tenacity. Uh, and, you know, she was, I think, very suited to the world of public relations. You know, I mean, she was wonderful at Um, you know, weaving a tale and building something up into with great drama and theatrics. uh, She'd spent some time working as a publicist for folks in the visual arts. Mm -hmm. And she had tried to uh, get stories written about designers. And her first go at it did not uh, work out. And I think in some ways she felt that it was this this hurdle that she needed to clear in order to really sort of prove herself. But but I think she also really just believed in the American fashion industry. You know, she helped found Fashion Week. She helped create awards to celebrate American design. Um, She kind of ruled over uh, when and how the press saw uh, the, you know, new collections. I mean, she was really intimately involved with most every aspect of the American fashion industry as we think of it today.
0: Yeah, absolutely, including um, founding the CFDA
2: as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: So these plans between the curator at Versailles and Lambert move forward, and essentially the event um, is a charity event that gets conceived as a showing of five French couturiers and also five American designers were um, selected as well. And um, the patrons would buy tickets, and it was the proceeds from this that would then go to the restoration of Versailles. Exactly. Uh, you know, this this was too large of a task for Lambert and her team to have pulled off on their own. So, you know, they had a lot of help <laughs> as well. <laughs> but how was it decided who was to represent the United States? And can you tell us a little bit about each of those five specific designers?
2: Well, I'll, I'll start with um, sort of The end, uh, and sort of back into it. Sure. Uh, The end being that uh, all five of them were, at some point, clients of Eleanor Lambert's. (laughs) A little nepotism (laughs) goes a long way. So that helps explain uh, a a pretty large piece of that. Um, You know, Oscar de la Renta and Bill Blass uh, were two of the designers, and both of them worked with Eleanor And they were, you know, definitely two of the more accomplished and influential uh, American designers of their day. And then, of course, there was Halston, Mm -hmm.
0: um,
2: who was in many respects, I think, the first uh, sort of American celebrity designer. I mean, that is a designer who himself uh, became a celebrity And uh, right around this time, uh, Halston had uh, sold his company and was sort of a freshly minted millionaire. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of attention was uh, focused on Halston at this time. His company was growing by leaps and bounds. He was dressing celebrities and socialites. And he'd really made an impact with this very... Um, sort of minimalist, relaxed, luxurious sportswear look. Yes. Um, there was Stephen Burroughs, who was the last of the designers to um, become an Eleanor Lambert client. He was the youngest. Um, he was, you know, I think maybe 20 years or younger than Bill Blass. And he was the hot, young upstart. Mm -hmm. He was, um, you know, this guy who had just, you know, finished at uh, FIT. Yes,
0: he's an FIT alum.
2: (laughs) He was, uh, you know, part of the downtown hipster arts crowd. And um, he really embraced a kind of, um, you know, the nightlife and his clothes were all about showing off the body um, he loved uh, Jersey, and so his clothes had this sort of slinky appeal to them, mm-hmm. and they were beautifully colorful. Yes, yeah. And he was, and he was also uh, the only African American designer to participate. And then the fifth American was Anne Klein, who was a little
0: bit controversial
2: of a selection, if I understand correctly. She was a bit controversial. She was the only woman to participate. Uh, And she was very much a sportswear designer yes. um, in the sense that her clothes were pragmatic. I mean, she was focused on dressing all those women who were building careers outside of the home. Mm -hmm. The Americans sort of felt that she would drag down their show Mm -hmm. because her clothes were so pragmatic. The French sort of felt that, you know, she was so far removed from the world of couture and high design, fine design, that it really wasn't appropriate for her to be involved. Um, But ultimately, um, you know, Eleanor was determined that she would participate. She wanted a woman to participate. Uh, Oscar de la Renta intervened a bit on Anne's behalf. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, she was included. And did quite well,
0: yeah, yeah and I just want to um uh, p- um mention a side note there that Donna Karen was her assistant at the time, so um she was actually present at this event as well
2: she was she was she was um also I think somewhere around at six or seven months pregnant at the oh at the gosh. time and, <laughs> and uh, just sort of and a very young new designer, and was just sort of taking it all in. I would like to flip this question
0: to the French faction as well. Who were the designated couturiers, and what was their particular significance?
2: Uh, you know, they were they were the grandees of French fashion. So it was uh, Hubert de Givenchy, Yves Saint Laurent, Pierre Cardin, Emmanuel Ungaro, and um, Marc Bohan for Christian Dior. And, you know, these were men who were really working in the world of haute couture. Saint Laurent had uh, just recently sort of launched uh, a ready-to-wear line, his his Rube Gauche line.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but really, these were people who represented sort of the traditions of French fashion and uh, sort of a forward progress of French fashion, but one that was still very much rooted in this idea that um, haute couture was um at the top of the pyramid and that everything trickled down from that.
0: Mm-hmm. So the evening was a charity event as we've already discussed and and what would any charity event be without very wealthy donor guests? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> who decided was, who was to be invited and and what were the
2: politics of doing so because this was a very hot invitation. It was a hot invitation. You know, it one of the things that I think sort of surprises people looking at this from, you know, the eyes of, you know, 21st century eyes, 2018 eyes, is typically today events like this, uh, one might compare it to, say, the Costume Institute Gala, which is so filled with uh, celebrities and political figures and just really with bold-faced names that everyone knows. And this was really an audience filled with sort of the jet-setting international social crowd. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, aside from faces like Princess Grace Mm -hmm. uh, or Andy Warhol, most of the faces, the average person probably would not necessarily have immediately recognized the names they would have. Um, But these were uh, socialites. They were um, people of old money um, they were. It was an international crowd, and it really reflected this idea that the world of uh, philanthropy at that time was so heavily populated by this group of international donors who essentially went from one fabulous party to another in various <laughs> countries. How do we, how do we join this crowd? That's what I would like to know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, We're going to find out more about what these attendees experienced in France right after this sponsor break. Welcome back. I would like to turn our attention to yet another very important element of producing a show of this nature, because clearly clothes do not show themselves. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they need models or mannequins, which is an alternate term that we sometimes use as fashion historians. Robin, how were the models who were to travel to Versailles selected by the Americans?
2: Well, the Americans, for one, did not have a ton of money. And so they essentially had agreed that they would share models. Mm -hmm. And in order for a model to be selected, at least uh, three designers had to agree that uh, she would be part of their uh, section of the show, and so then they went about just with the process of selecting the models, and um, you know they took about thirty six models with them, and uh, almost a third of them uh, were African American. Yes. Uh, or and it, you know it just sort of happened, or I should say they were black because one had been from Brazil, um, but it just so so happened that um, because of the times. Um, These were models that, um, you know, whose fees were not as high. So they were less expensive. Um, But that is not to say that they were inexperienced because they were. I mean, these were women who had, you know, appeared in the pages of Vogue Mm -hmm. uh, and had walked the runways uh, on a regular basis. But they chose them in part based on models that they had worked with before, um, and they also chose them based on discovering how incredible they could be on the runway. And and I say that thinking um, primarily of the model Billy Blair. Yes. Who walked for Oscar de la Renta. She walked for uh, Bill Blass. And she wasn't necessarily uh, a favorite of theirs. It wasn't as if she had, particularly with Bill Blass, it wasn't as if she had really walked for him before. Uh, But Bill Bloss's uh, right-hand man had seen her in a charity show uh, in Philadelphia uh, in the months before the Versailles show. And he was absolutely mesmerized Mm. by her transformation on the runway and essentially came back to New York and insisted to Bill that this woman has to be in your show. She's incredible. She just transforms the runway.
0: And we will absolutely speak a bit more about the models um, at this show because their role was really fundamental. But before we kind of shift into that, I'd like to talk a little bit about the lead-up to the show. First of all, I I understand that the plane ride to France was quite a party. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, the plane ride over was uh, a bit raucous, to say the least. <laughs> there... Uh, there was a bit of smoking and dancing and partying in the aisles.
0: I'm guessing that the smoking was probably not just cigarettes, too.
2: You're, you're guessing correctly. <laughs> uh, clearly, this was in the days before uh, the TSA crackdown. <laughs> <laughs> this was the '70s. This was the disco era, of course. <laughs> exactly. They they had quite a good time on the way over.
0: Well. I think their fortunes kind of reversed a bit once they hit France and rehearsals for the show began, um, because this did not necessarily go smoothly. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that the American contingent faced when, when they arrived in France and were actually in the throes of producing the show?
2: Well, many of the challenges that the Americans faced, some were of their own making and some were sort of the the blowback from challenges that the French faced. I mean, the Americans had uh, famously mismeasured the size of the backdrop that they were going to need. And uh, it turned out that what they had prepared was much, much, much too small for the space. Mm. And so they had to punt and come up with something, um, you know, on on the fly, Um, They were not using uh, an orchestra, they were using recorded music, and this was in the era of sort of like reel-to-reel recording, which essentially meant that once the tape started, they couldn't stop it. And so there were um, pauses that were actually recorded into the tape that would allow for a transition on the runway, But if the transition took too long or was shorter than expected, then everything would be out of sync. Um, So they were sort of working with that kind of just logistical pressure. And then the French had essentially come up with a stage performance That in which they threw everything on stage except for the kitchen sink. I mean, they had an orchestra, (laughs) they had ballet dancers, they had poetry readings, they had floats and balloons. I mean, they had all manner of craziness. And it took them a long time to rehearse all of this and try to figure it out. And it left very little time for the Americans to run their dress rehearsal uh, because... You know, unions being what they are, when it was time for the engineers and the lighting people to go home, they were ready to turn off the lights at Versailles. Yeah. And go home and leave the Americans in the dark. And it was winter. It's a bit, you know, the theater was not particularly well heated, so Mm -hmm. it was cold. And I think the Americans expected that the French were going to be supplying them with snacks and drinks and all other, you know, other kinds of creature comforts. And uh, the French, not so much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure this created um, quite the tension amongst the group. And I understand there was a little bit of infighting, too, within the American contingent themselves, kind of power struggle.
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was really coming from Halston, who uh, was referring to himself in the third person. And <laughs> As one does,
0: once you get that Norton Simon money. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, but, you know, in his defense, I would also say that there was a lot of pressure on him. Uh, that Norton Simon money had uh, drawn a lot of the spotlight his way, and I think I think he was feeling quite a bit of stress. He'd also brought in uh, Liza Minnelli, Mm -hmm. who was a friend, to sort of serve as their star attraction. Um, Originally, Liza was only going to perform in Halston's portion of the show, and Oscar de la Renta was not pleased with that, and he got on the phone to his friend, Raquel Welch, Mm -hmm. and asked her if she would be willing to come over to Paris and perform and Liza was not happy that Raquel would step on stage and sort of just be Raquel. And after some back and forth decided, you know, it was decided that Liza Minnelli would be the only celebrity and she would be this sort of continuous strand that would run through the American production. Liza invited Kate Thompson to come on board to choreograph mm-hmm. uh, the American portion of the show. All of this, of course, you know, can be traced back to the influence of Halston. And so he sort of felt that, you know, he should get the first choice, the first dibs, the most time, the most attention. And we are dealing with the designers. And right. they were not pleased with that. Right, right, right.
0: So, Manelli, um, as you mentioned, um, kind of served as an MC of sorts um, throughout the American portion. And her uh, companion on the French side was actually Josephine Baker, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this French portion of the performance? You already mentioned all the ballet dancers and the the floats and the balloons, but it really was this kind of like massive spectacle blowout on the French side.
2: Yeah, I mean, each designer on the French side sort of had a theme. And if memory serves, uh, you know, the Saint Laurent theme involved um, this sort of, you know, urbane, sophisticated set that included, um, you know, like a a Rolls-Royce sort of appearing on stage. And Givenchy had a garden set. Uh, Pierre Cardin's set involved a rocket uh, because he was very focused on the sort of sleek, uh, futuristic looking clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but Josephine Baker, I think, was this real was sort of the real emotional uh, center to the French presentation. And um, you know, she performed um, in this practically sheer glittery catsuit. Uh, That was really quite stunning. I mean, she was not um, a particularly young woman at that point in her career and looked amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the really lovely stories is, you know, there were all of these young Black models who uh, had come with the American contingent. And for a lot of them, it was really their first time in Paris. And, um, you know, it was really quite a magical experience for them. And Oscar de la Renta took it, you know, upon himself, just to sort of go over to Josephine Baker and ask her if uh, she would go to lunch with um with these young models. oh wow. that's wonderful. and uh, and she did. And I remember, you know, chatting with um the models uh, who uh, the surviving models. And they talked about that. And described it as really the most memorable point of the entire of the entire trip
0: yeah and uh, Josephine was actually um, American by birth. she was from St. Louis, but she had become a French citizen at that point in her career and been living in France for many, many decades.
2: yeah, and I you know I, I don't have any you know evidence of this, but I always sort of thought that the choice of Josephine Baker was also just a little bit of sort of a uh, poking the ribs <gasps> to the Americans, <laughs> so <laughs> that you know we're, yeah. the French are so fabulous that we even get Josephine Baker. Yeah,
0: um, can you tell us a little bit about the American portion of the show, and and how did that compare or contrast to um, the French who had proceeded first?
2: Well, the American por- portion was quite streamlined. Uh, the backdrop was really sort of a an impressionistic sketch of the Eiffel Tower. And um, it opened with a performance by Liza Minnelli with the dancers, uh, with the models sort of serving as, the, as dancers uh, in her chorus. And um, it was really quite a, a simple opening. I mean, the uh, t- stage direction that Liza gave to the models was to essentially, you know, pretend like you're tourists, seeing Paris for the first time, and the more realistic your sort of delight, wide eyed delight and curiosity, um, you know, the better for the performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Americans also used contemporary music. Uh, there were no sort of orchestral interludes or anything like that. It was really about uh, the models and the clothes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it really was focused on those two things and the ability of models to breathe life into clothes that were, you know, compared to the, the French counterparts, quite simple. Mm-hmm.
0: So can you describe for us the reaction of the audience at the completion of the American performance? Because I think this, this is the key factor here that we're really kind of, this is the meat of the issue that we're kind of getting at.
2: Well, the French portion of the show had been quite long and quite elaborate. And uh, there was a brief intermission. And so the American portion of the show really didn't start until quite late into the evening. And it only lasted maybe, you know, 20, 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was quite short. And when it finished, the audience was... um, just in, I think, was a bit shell shocked by what they had seen because it was uh, really as if a breath of fresh air had just sort of blown into the theater. Gabrielle, mm-hmm. um, it was the, it was not just the simplicity of the clothes; it was the way in which the clothes were so much in service to the women who were wearing them. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the way in which the movement of the models, the drama, the theatrics, the confidence of them um, transformed these, you know, these dresses. I mean, I think about you know Stephen Burrows' work, and we're talking about maybe a rainbow-colored dress, but one that is still quite simply constructed, and it seemed to you know take flight and turn into something else because. The models in it would come sashaying down the runway and, you know, do these, like Pat Cleveland, for instance, who could spin (laughs) like a whirling dervish. That's our signature move. (laughs) Right? And come to the end of the runway and just, you know, stick it like this extraordinary gymnastics performer. And, I mean, no one had seen that. And it was it was mesmerizing. And the audience cheered, truly. The audience cheered. Yeah, and, and it's my understanding, some of them threw
0: their programs up in the air as well. So it was it was a bit of a celebration at the end.
2: It it really was. And it's you know, I think it's also important to know that um that audience was heavily weighted towards the French and heavily weighted towards non-Americans. So it wasn't as if um, you know, the Americans had brought you know, this massive cheering section. Mm -hmm. I mean, they really had not. um, They were really, to some degree, kind of going into the lion's den, so to speak. Right, right. But they won the hearts of France. (sighs) They
0: did. They really did. We're going to go ahead and take another brief sponsor break here. But when we come back, as promised, I want to come back to the models. Welcome back. Robin, I'm hoping that you can tell us what role the models played in the general consensus that the Americans stole the show.
2: <laughs> um, well, I think all of the American designers readily admitted that um, the models, n- not so much had saved the day, but had been kind of their secret weapon. Mm-hmm. It was it was interesting because um, so many of the the models took the lead of the black models who had been working in New York, and when they walked down the runway, they they were often—they were encouraged to, and they had this propensity to really bring sort of drama and personality to the runway. Mm -hmm. They didn't just sort of saunter down and get to the end of the runway, pause and turn around and go back they walked they each had a kind of pers- a personality they let that loose on the runway they let the m- the music inform uh their movement and they made it clear that they were not just hangers for the clothes right but they were um but they were sort of in partnership with the clothes they were in control of the clothes and that was something that really was not the norm uh, on the runways in, in Europe, for instance. Um, you know, I still am amazed when I think about having read how fashion shows like at Balenciaga were done in silence. Silence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all you heard, you know, was sort of the maybe the rustling of papers and gentle applause. And I mean, The thought of looking at a show without music, Mm -hmm. which is so important to giving the show and the clothes an emotional jolt. Um, I mean, I just can't imagine it. And when you add the fact that the models were allowed to really sort of live in the clothes, um, it really gave the American portion of the show um, a sense of humanity. Right. Right that uh, fashion shows often did not have.
0: Yeah, and and you write in your book about, um, you have a quote from the French newspaper Figaro saying, the French basically admitting they say, I would not be telling the truth if I did not say that the Americans show their clothes 100 times better than we. And they really credit that to the American models, and then the black models in particular.
2: Yeah, the, the funny thing about uh, the French response was, and uh, uh, when I, interviewed Pierre Berger from Saint-Laurent about this, one of the things that he freely said was that absolutely the American models, particularly the black models who really exuded um, personality on the runway, really sold the clothes and really stole the show. But embedded in that was this notion that, well, the French clothes were probably better. Mm -hmm. We just didn't show them quite as well.
0: (laughs) It's all about context, right, and spin. It's all about spin, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I'm glad you brought this up about, like, researching it from the French perspective, because I had a really interesting conversation recently with two fashion historians from Paris, and I happened to be showing them um, some of our Bill Cunningham photographs that he had taken at the Battle of Versailles. which. Mm -hmm. Um, We acquired recently, so last time I saw you, we did not have them. You should know that we have them now. Um, Oh, wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And and one of um, the fashion historians I was speaking to, she has been a fashion and textile curator in France for many, many years in France, and she had never even heard of the Battle of Versailles or the Grand Divertissement of Versailles. And I was a little bit stunned um, thinking about this, but her companion— um, had read your book and, and was familiar with it, and she basically summed it up, saying that it was a little bit of a sore subject. Perhaps the French don't really <laughs> talk about it because their pride was a little bit wounded. So I'm glad that you brought up, you know, your experience researching the book from the French perspective as
2: well. Yeah, I would probably uh, agree with her assessment. I mean, it was a moment when the French had really Bitten off a lot, and um, they had also just sort of presumed that, you know, this was this was was never meant to be a competition, right? But um, the media uh, sort of ginned it up into a competition, with a little bit of help from Eleanor Lambert, (laughs) and uh, (laughs) and and so I, I think that the French also went into it thinking that, oh, you know, this is an easy win you know there's this really nothing to worry about here and to some degree i think if it had just been a matter of uh you know a, a still life installation of clothes on you know mannequins then the french probably would have sort of won the day but the reality was this it wasn't just it wasn't just about the clothes it was about the way that the clothes existed in, in life, in right. the contemporary world, in a woman's life. And the Americans, I think, really grasped the idea that clothing could not just exist as artistry and it couldn't exist um, as a pure expression of a designer's creativity, that there had to be this partnership with the woman who was ultimately going to wear the clothes. And in many ways the woman who was going to wear the clothes had to be given the upper hand right. and i think that was something that was not really the that wasn't the case with french fashion and it wasn't necessarily something that designers were comfortable with yet and sometimes still struggle with
0: yeah i'm curious what are your thoughts on the legacy of the battle of versailles
2: today i think from a pure fashion perspective uh, clothing perspective, mm-hmm. I think that it it did do what Eleanor Lambert had hoped. It raised the profile of American design. It um, gave a, a level of validity to American sportswear, mm-hmm. which today really is sort of the driving force of fashion in general. Um, I, I think it's you know it helps to explain uh, every time an American is hired. Uh, into a French company,
0: right? Because that was not the norm at the time.
2: Absolutely not. And I and I think the reason that Americans are tend to be hired into French companies is when they are looking to modernize the company, when they are looking to um, make it more youthful. There is this sense that American design. Um, has a looseness to it and an ease Mm -hmm. um, that is very particularly American. And I think that is one of the the big legacies of Versailles. Um, And, you know, I think the other is the sense of confidence that it gave American designers and the sense that their creative ideas— were legitimate and that they did not have to keep looking to Paris mm-hmm. for validation. I was struck by something that Bill Blass had said, which was that if there was any sort of regret that he had about his career, it was that he had never worked in Paris couture. And, you know, this is from someone who was so extraordinary su- extraordinarily successful and influential, but there was still this kind of nagging Uh, tug uh, at his psyche that somehow not having worked in French couture was this aspect of experience that he was forever missing. And certainly uh, American designers today don't have that feeling. So I think Versailles uh, gave them this legacy of confidence. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, it's it's almost like Um, The French and the Americans are are both speaking the language of fashion, but they're different languages,
2: and that's okay. Exactly, exactly. Each one, um, you know, valid to, uh, you know, a particular customer base. Mm -hmm.
0: So um, I'm curious, too, a little bit about the lasting impact on the modeling industry, and particularly the black modeling industry. Because you wrote in your book, you say, quote, race played a role in the American triumph at Versailles but it did not transform the lives of the black models who made it such a memorable statement. Um, and you personally, I doubt there are very few people on the face of the planet who attend more runway shows than you do. <laughs> um, so, what is your firsthand assessment of diversity on the runway today? Where are we headed in that conversation? And and was Versailles a pivotal moment in it?
2: When I I got to the end of the book, I. Struggled with it because I, I think people in general like to have a, a happy ending. Right. And I, I wanted to be able to say that uh, the success of the Black Models on the Runway that evening had really set um, the modeling industry on a different trajectory. But the evidence did not support that. Uh, what the evidence said was that this had been a particular moment of uh, in which the the black models had triumphed, but that the modeling industry, you know, is ebbs and flows based on trends in the same way that um, fashion does. I mean, I, I don't think that it changed the the trajectory of the careers of the black models who were involved. Um, I think it, it was certainly a high point mm-hmm. in their career. but um i don't I did not see that it um brought them greater fame and fortune. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think to some degree, that was also just sort of the nature of modeling in that period. No one was really becoming a millionaire as a model then. Um But what I do think about uh, diversity now is that, you know, it's sort of it's ebbed and flowed. Um, Versailles was a high point. The 90s and early 2000s were a low point when there was uh, practically no diversity on the runway. Mm -hmm. And I think now we're coming, we are in a period when there's an extraordinary amount of diversity on the runway in both race and age and size and gender. Um, And that's a really wonderful thing to see. Whether or not we get to a period where that, again, begins to ebb and it sort of swings back the other way. I don't know. Um, I tend to think perhaps no, um, because I think there's other forces, There, there's diversity in other places that uh, will help to sustain that. And by that, I mean, I think we're starting to see more diversity in the designers who are. Uh, showing on the runway, there's a greater awareness of diversity uh, in terms of the scouting of models, Um, and just in general, a heightened awareness um, from a new generation of consumers who I don't think, I hope, won't tolerate a fashion industry that refuses to uh, reflect them in all of their diversity. and. This is a
0: hopeful moment, a hopeful thought, and I think maybe perhaps we should end there on that positive note. Um, So (laughs) we will wrap up for today. Robin, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day today to join us on
2: Dressed. Thank you for having me. It was great fun.
1: Thank you. Yeah, Robin, thank you so much. April, this was such a treat to have Robin on the show She is one of the most respected voices of fashion criticism working today. And in a genre of journalism that can oftentimes be, um, well, let's be honest, full of a little bit of fluff and filler rather than substance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You really know that Robin will always deliver super insightful cultural criticism. One of
0: the things I love about her is that she also doesn't pull any punches. (laughs) No, she doesn't. (laughs) It always makes me smile, and she oh so skillfully checks people on their BS. Um, And she does it in this really kind way without malice, and she's such a dexterous writer that it just makes it all the more delicious. So if any of our listeners would like to learn more about the Battle of Versailles, you can check out Robin's book, The Battle of Versailles, The Night American Fashion Stumbled Into the Spotlight and Made History.
1: Yeah. And I think you two uh, really hit on a interesting point when you talked about how 45 years after the Battle of Versailles, those tensions between American and French fashion designers have really thawed. And I mean, you can look to all of the American designers who have recently helmed French fashion brands. I know you both mentioned Michael Kors at Celine, but also Oscar de la Renta, who participated in Versailles, went on to head Balmain for a period. And more recently, we had Alexander Wang at Balenciaga and Mark Jacobs at Louis Vuitton. So this shift can really be said to have started with the Battle of Versailles when American talents were on full display.
0: Yeah. This event may not be exactly common knowledge outside of the fashion world, but this was truly a seminal moment that spoke to shifting ideologies that played out in the 1960s and the 1970s. You know, women were reconceptualizing what they wanted. They were putting their ambitions out into the public sphere about work, sex, family. And this spirit of feminine freedom is really what was captured by the Americans in their performance at Versailles. And this is what the audience responded to. You know, they were kind of channeling the zeitgeist of the era. And this freshness caused the old world to really stop in its tracks and take notice. And of course, we would be remiss not to mention that there is also a film documentary about the Battle of Versailles. It's called Versailles 73. I don't think that Robin had any hand in its creation. It's a separate project, but but equally lovely.
1: And that does it for us this week, Dress listeners. Perhaps you will consider the legacy of American fashion in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. As always, you can find lots of images to accompany each week's episodes on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. And this is also our Twitter handle. And you can find us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. You can find recommended readings on our website, dressedpodcast.com.
0: And if you would like to write to us, you can do so at dressed at howstuffworks.com. If you're looking for holiday gifts for friends and family, please check out our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's teepublic.com forward slash dressed. And last but certainly not least, thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry, and everyone else over at How Stuff Works that makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon. Bye.